How's everybody doing today? You're here. That's a good thing. All right. Well, we, we have a lot to get through today. Uh, as the old country song says, we've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. All right. So here we go. We're going to just breeze through what we learned last week. Uh, in chapter 9, remember in chapter 9 we had the successful uh, inauguration of the public sacrifices. We had all the priests, all properly clothed. All the myriad of details uh, were in place. And now for the first time we had the, uh, the, the initiation of the actual sacrifices. A, a red-letter day in the history of Israel, a, a high point, one of the high points like the Exodus, and, and now we've got the initiation of the sacrificial system, uh, <clears throat> and then to close the chapter, we end up with uh, the, the, the spectacle of uh, fire coming forth from before the Lord and consuming the sacrifices that were on the altar of a burnt offering. And everybody saw that. They saw the Lord's display of glory. They saw the, the fire burn up the sacrifices. And they, I mean, they were just awestruck with what had happened. That's, that's an amazing uh, event so, the blessing that God desires to give us uh, is ours as we obey him. All right, that's, that's what they did. Remember the recurring statement that such and such was done as the Lord commanded Moses. Chapter 9 is all about doing things exactly as the Lord commanded. And because everybody... Uh, in the priesthood, from the priesthood to the people, they all understood that obedience was crucial to a blessing from the Lord. So obedience we render to the Lord is a function of the relationship with him that we have in the new covenant. We don't live under the old covenant, of course. Uh, nonetheless, we still can uh, benefit from uh, seeing the way things happened in the Old Testament. And then we see that there's continuity to a certain extent from the Old Testament to the New Testament, although there are elements of discontinuity too. And so living in the new covenant age, there are elements of discontinuity. But God's timeless truth that he's communicating in what happened at the Old Testament is instructive to us because the Lord is the same. He is immutable. And his, his, what he uh, commends and what he condemns, everything is immutable. All right, so one of the key things here is obedience. That's one of the immutable uh, character qualities of our Lord that uh, he, he desires in us. He desires it for us to obey what he said. 
A tabernacle allowed God to dwell with his people, but there was a more intimate dwelling coming. And we saw that in John 1.14, that Christ now has tabernacled among us. And we saw he's full of grace and truth, and the grace of the only begotten uh, Son of the Father. And so Christ could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then we get on further into the New Testament, and we learn our individual bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and corporately, as the church, we are the body of of, uh, of Christ. And so now the Holy Spirit dwells within us. Talk about a level of intimacy that the Old Testament believer could have hardly imagined. That is our privilege. All right, now we get into chapter uh, 10, and things are quite a bit different. What happens when priests try to offer sacrifices in a way that was not commanded by the Lord through Moses? That's what we're going to see showing up here in chapter 10. What a, what a sad day this was. As a matter of fact, it's even heightened in its tragicness. Is that a word? Tragicness? It's tragicity? No, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, it, it's, it's even heightened because it was the same day. It was the eighth day. After the seven-day period of the ordination of the priests, then we had the eighth day, and so we're still in that eighth day. After all those sacrifices, now we have the story of Nadav and Abihu, Nadab and Abihu. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. There's the key, which he, God, had not commanded them. The opposite of everything we saw in chapter 9. So, let's ask ourselves the question, what in the world is unauthorized fire? So glad you asked that question. All right, let's take a look at it. Interpreters have developed, or has debated, what unauthorized fire is. And by the way, they can't even uh, agree on whether fire here is literally just the fire, uh, or whether that word fire is used by metonymy, part for the whole, to refer to the entirety of the incense offering. In other words, it would refer to the fire, it would refer to the incense, it would refer to the process of putting the incense on the fire, offering it before the Lord, that would be all wrapped up in the concept of uh, unauthorized fire. So, 
What about the word unauthorized? What does that mean? Well, the Hebrew adjective uh, for unauthorized is the word zer. Very easy word. Uh, And that's what's translated unauthorized. The word is translated various ways depending on the context. The uh, word occurs 71 times in the Old Testament. So it's not as if we don't understand many contextual usages of the word. It's that we uh, struggle to see which one of those usages would be in view here. Now, uh, let's just take a look then at some of these usages, some representative ones. And what we're going to see when we look at all these examples is there is a a common semantic value to the way the word is used in any context. It seems to be that uh, the common meaning here is the idea of foreign to a relationship, foreign to a covenantal relationship particularly. All right, so let's take a look at some of them. He has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me, Job declares in Job 19.13. Well, Job had suffered so much, especially he had suffered physically, he was actually repulsive to people. I mean, you got around him, and it was like looking at a decaying live person, somebody who who might have looked like he'd been dead for months, and yet he was still living. He was a walking corpse, afflicted, as only Satan can do it. The Lord had told Satan, all right, go ahead, afflict him, but don't you dare take his life. Well, Satan afflicted him right up to everything but taking his life. And so now, Job complains, I am, my brothers consider me there, consider me uh, a foreigner. Look at how close the relationship with brothers is. And yet, such a close relationship suddenly became foreign. Brothers are acting like, whoa, who's this? Is this Job? Boy, we're not going to have anything to do with him. We can't even stand the sight of him. All right, here's another usage. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, that is, on the altar of incense. Uh, And so here now we have a, a context very similar to the one in chapter 10. And so, uh, basically, this is way back in Exodus 30, verse 9, when the Lord was describing how there was going to be an altar of incense built and what that altar would be used for. All right, so there's to be no unauthorized incense. Now the word, the Hebrew word for incense appears not the 
the more general word of unauthorized fire. Uh, You shall not offer a burnt offering or a grain offering or drink offering on the altar of incense. It was only meant to be for one purpose. So Israel's relationship with Yahweh was based on the Mosaic Covenant, and violation of the covenant was foreign to that relationship between God's people and himself. And when there was a violation of what he had specifically commanded, then the relationship with the Lord would be marred to some extent, depending on the severity of the, of the action. And so, basically, this would, this would introduce an element of foreignness in Israel's relationship to the Lord, which was intolerable. The Lord just could not pass that by and say, well, they didn't do the altar of incense correctly today. They didn't offer the proper incense, or who knows what could have happened here. They didn't do it as I commanded. I'm not overlooking that. That's a serious breach of covenantal relationship. You see, the word is based uh, on a relationship. Back in Proverbs, Solomon said, For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. And, of course, those of you who grew up with the King James Version know that that, that, that is the strange woman. Probably, you know, kids have grown up reading the King James and have thought, what in the world is a strange woman? Is she weird? I mean, when you see her walk down the street, she just, uh, whoa, look at the way she's dressed. That's strange. Well, it might be be the case, but she's essentially a harlot. And everything about her demeanor, her dress, her actions is all seductive. Here the adulteress is clearly foreign to the relationship that God intends uh, between a man and his wife. Or if the, if the guy here is not yet married, which it could be the case, because remember uh, that Solomon is instructing his son who are probably, you know, young to later teens, somewhere in the, in the area of a marriageable male. And the expectation for both young men, unmarried men, and unmarried women was the same. No double standard. Stay pure sexually until marriage, and then within marriage, maintain that sexual purity. All right, so that was the expectation. And for a woman to act seductively to try to get a young man or or a married man to abandon that covenantal relationship with his future wife or with his, indeed, current wife, that would be Zare. This, This woman is foreign to the relationship God wanted men to have with their wives.
All right, here's, a, here's the last one I'll, I'll mention. Isaiah 1-7. Your country lies desolate, the prophet is, is saying. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. Well, what this is looking at is the fact that in 701 B.C., the Assyrian king Sennacherib came and besieged, well, first he besieged Israel, uh, then he besieged Judah, and he was very successful in, in conquering all the uh, high defensed cities of Judah. And then the whole focus of the Assyrian military might was brought to bear against Jerusalem. And King Hezekiah is there in Jerusalem. And Sennacherib would have been, no doubt, successful in destroying Jerusalem in 701 B.C. Except Hezekiah was a man of faith. And he took the letter that first Rabshakeh spoke the words first, and then Sennacherib wrote a letter telling Hezekiah, look, might as well surrender now. Your God, Yahweh, he's not capable of protecting you against Assyria. What king can you name that was ever successful in trusting the God he served to deliver them from Assyrian might? And Sennacherib starts lifting off all these kings and all these countries, all subjugated by the Assyrians. All right, so what happens? Hezekiah takes the letter to the temple, spreads it out before the Lord, and says, Lord, he's right. All these countries have been defeated by Assyria. We're in your hands, though. Please show yourself mighty on our behalf. We don't want these foreigners walking around Jerusalem and surveying a destroyed temple and, and gloating over the fact that they just destroyed the very heart of Yahweh's territory. Please work. And so God did. And he killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers while they slept, wiped them out, and delivered Jerusalem. So, what's foreigners here? Foreigners are, that are outside of the, uh, the family of Israel. They're, they're foreign in every sense of the word. They don't know the Lord. They don't, they're not ethnically a part of Israel. They're just completely outside of the covenantal relationship. So there you go. That's the way the Old Testament uses the word unauthorized. Foreign to a covenant relationship. Foreign to uh, what uh, you are used to as your closest inner circle. Now, here are some ways commentators have interpreted the concept of foreign fire. All right, so 
And now that we've established what the idea of foreign is, how does that apply to fire, to the altar of incense offering? Well, one, fire in the literal sense, not in the figurative sense, just literal fire for the incense offering was supposed to be taken as the Lord commanded from off the brazen altar, the bronze altar. That was where you were to get it from. And then incense would be put on that in a censer and offered uh, <clears throat> as, a, uh, as, a, as an incense offering. All right, so perhaps then what we would say is here that Nadab and Abihu sourced the fire from somewhere else. Where would the somewhere else be? Maybe a campfire outside their tent. We don't know where they got it from, but perhaps it was not off the the bronze altar. That's a possibility. Secondly, Nadab and Abihu were drunk and thus and thus disrespected the Lord by their offering. This possibility would explain why the Lord spoke directly to Aaron. Okay, I mean, direct, not through Moses, as almost every other occasion is. No, the Lord personally addresses uh, Aaron. And he tells him that the priests must never drink wine when they're about to go on duty. So, although it's not explicitly stated uh, that this was because of what Nadab and Abihu did, I think it's probably a good uh, observation here that the Lord's instruction here, right after the actual event, of fire coming out and devouring Nadab and Abihu, it's, I think, logical to say that Nadab and Abihu were drunk. Now, think back about some of the things you know about ancient Near Eastern kings. Think, for instance, about how the Persian kings especially liked to have people who were happy and who were extremely capable. That's why Daniel got um, promoted through the ranks, because he was diligent and he was trustworthy and he was smart and he cared about, more passionately about serving the king. But what would a king think if uh, one, of his, one of his servants came in to serve him and they were drunk. How would that go over, do you suppose? Off with his head. Nobody's going to come into my presence that way. Expect to serve me while they're drunk. I used to work for the paper industry. I got out of school, graduated, went to work for Champion International in Canton, North Carolina, you know, working for the mill that's about to close down. Uh, and so 
Here I am. It's my first Monday morning on the job. My fellow uh, uh, process engineers are coming into work. They're dragging into work. I mean, they're basically all hung over. All they've done since Friday at 5 o'clock is swill booze. Drink beer till it's coming out of their ears. Uh, liquor. I mean, just all weekend long. Try to drink their boredom away. The fact that they, they uh, are miserable overall as human beings was a sad, sad sight. And so, essentially, I'm looking at these guys, and what are they doing? Are they working? No, they're all at the coffee pot trying to drink enough coffee to get over their hangover. Is this the kind of person that a king would want to have serving him? Absolutely not. It would have been disrespectful to the king to the nth degree. All right, so that's a possibility that they disrespected the Lord this way. Also, of course, part of this disrespect would be they were so drunk that they didn't even probably have a a desire in the world to do this incense offering the way the Lord had commanded it to be done. So there are numerous possibilities here, but uh, (coughs) it all stemmed from their drunkenness. Okay, another possibility. The incense they offered was not what the covenant had specified. Remember back in Exodus 34, uh, 30, 34 to 38, God had commanded Moses exactly what components were to go into the incense that was to be offered on the incense altar. All right, so we have a listing of these. They were all to be used in the same concentration. It was to be the work of a skillful perfumer. And nobody else in Israel could have that exact formulation of incense. If anybody did have any of it and burned it, that was a capital offense. All right, so people took it seriously. Don't make anything like the same incense that's used in the tabernacle. Well, what if Nadab and Abihu hadn't cared about that? What if they might have even sourced some of the incense they burned from pagan sources? They were no doubt very used to this idea of incense being offered while they were still in Egypt. And what if they'd made some of their own, made their own concoction? That's a possibility. All right, last one, and I, I kind of like this, I lean towards this, although I must say it could have been a combination of all four of these things that Nadab and Abihu did. Uh, but uh, here's, here's the idea that it was an attempt by Nadab and Abihu to enter the Holy of Holies. 
which was not their prerogative to do. Only Dad could do this. Only Aaron could go, the high priest, could go into the Holy of Holies. And he could only do that once on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And that whole process is described in Leviticus 16. All right, so uh, basically to go into a king's throne room without being invited was, once again, a capital offense in the ancient Near East. Remember Esther chapter 4, verses 10 and 11? Mordecai encourages Esther to go before the king and plead for her people, the Israelites. But Esther says to Mordecai, the Lord, I mean, uh, not the Lord, uh, the king has not invited me now for a month. If I go before him now, uninvited, it's going to mean my death. The only way to avoid death is if the king holds out the golden scepter and says, okay, it's okay. Even though you weren't invited, I'm not going to see you killed. But maybe, I don't know this for a fact, maybe Esther had never seen that done. To her knowledge, no one had ever come into the throne room uninvited and had the king hold out the golden scepter to him. Mordecai says, look, I mean, perhaps you are there as the queen uh, under God's purposes for this very hour to put your life on the line and go before the king uninvited. And because it meant life or death to her people, Esther went into the throne room and the king held out to her the golden scepter. All right? So let's take a look at at Leviticus uh, chapter 16. I think we're going to see here that essentially uh, that's exactly what happens uh, uh, here in in, uh, Leviticus 16. Uh, Nadab and Abihu, no doubt, were counting on the Lord not being so much as uh, like an ancient Near Eastern king. And so the Lord spoke to Moses, Leviticus 16.1 says, after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. Notice, when they drew near before the Lord. Now, where would that be? Well, most likely in the Holy of Holies. That's where the Lord dwelt, above the Ark of the Covenant, above the place of of atonement, between the cherubim. And so, and notice, and they died. So here here we have an instance in which for some reason, 
Nadab and Abihu thought they could do what the Lord had commanded not to be done. Nobody but the high priest was to go into the Holy of Holies. Not only that, but they did it in the wrong day. This was not Yom Kippur. This was the eighth day after the priests were anointed. They were totally out of line. The fact that they were drunk probably uh, emboldened them to act in such a disrespectful way, such a way foreign to what the Lord had commanded. So Leviticus 10.2 says, And fire came out from before Yahweh and consumed them. This event was the opposite of what happened in chapter 9. When fire came out before Yahweh and consumed the sacrifices on the bronze altar. But now fire comes out and, and uh, consumes Nadab and Abihu. They're dead instantly. Now, were they burned up entirely? No, because their dead bodies had to be removed. And we'll see uh, that in the rest of chapter 10. But what an instant act of judgment. We are out of time, and so we are going to have to break off here and pick up the action next week. All right, so why don't you go ahead and read through Leviticus 10, and we're going to ask ourselves the question, what does this mean to us today? Be thinking about that because I'm going to give you the opportunity next week to say how this applies to us. Just at the very end here, can you think of anything in the New Testament that corresponds to this immediate judgment of Nadab and Abihu? Ananias and Sapphira. What if the Lord killed everyone who in any way ever disrespected the Lord or killed anyone who ever lied to the Holy Spirit? How many people would be left teaching, left preaching, left sitting in the pews? We'd all be burned up. We'd all be consumed. Why did God do that in these two instances? Think on these things. Meditate. See you next week. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for your word, for the truth of it, and we are also thankful that we must do things that are entirely commensurate with what you command in your word. So, Father, help us to Realize that you are not to be trifled with. What you say must be taken not only seriously, but obeyed implicitly. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.